We are finishing up a study uh, in Ecclesiastes, a brief study in five or six weeks. We've been in the book of Ecclesiastes, and this morning we'll be finishing that. Next week I'm out of town. Glenn McNaughton will be sharing. You don't want to miss that. He's given me an outline. It's going to be fantastic. Um, And then we're going to be tackling, uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to start tackling the book of Matthew. So we're going to figure out how we... Be Jesus to this world. It's an amazing book, and beginning to study it, uh, it's just it's wonderful. So that's kind of where we're headed. Um, yesterday, I went to my uh, office at Starbucks. I'm we're a multi-office church, and I have offices everywhere. And uh, yesterday morning, I was at my office at Starbucks, and in, in here, well, I should say here in Haymarket, there in Haymarket. And uh, I had this this metaphor came to me as I'm driving up because you'll you'll recognize this if you go in. But here's the picture that as I'm driving into uh, there, the massage and facial spa and this is a really trendy. I've never set foot inside. I'd be terrified to go inside this place. But they put like hot stones on you and they exfoliate you and they just do all this incredible stuff. Do you notice what's on top of the building to the left? There's three huge vultures. Here's a close-up of the vultures. So this is Ecclesiastes. Because you spend all your life and time at 100 bucks an hour getting hot stones put on you. What the vultures are thinking? You're beautiful. You, you look delicious now. Because, you know, as I'm, as I'm thinking, I'm scraggy looking. I hadn't shaved. I was pretty, you know. And I'm thinking, they don't want me. They're looking for the people at the massage parlor, you know, the massage spa to come out, right? They're, that's what they're looking for. And so this is Ecclesiastes. This is what we've been looking at, is that we spend our lives trying to find purpose, meaning, beautifying ourselves, all these things, and eventually you're vulture bait. They're thinking your bones look delicious. Whether it's the vultures of time, whether it's the ravages of disease, whether it's simply the progress of what happens the, the, the book of Ecclesiastes on one level presents this picture of how transitory, how quick our lives are and how like breath, this word used over and over. We've talked about it every week. This will be the last week you'll hear this Greek Hebrew word for a while, but the word hebel, the word means futility, vanity. It literally means breath or smoke. And the preacher looks at all these things and says it just doesn't matter. Thank you, honey. She's actually not just coming back from a mission trip to the, uh, to the, to the, I don't know, somewhere scary looking. You'll see this in a minute. Um, and so as we look at this breath and futility, you can look at the book and say, well, geez, why do anything? Well, I mean, if it all's just, you know, going to heaven or to hell, what does it matter? Why do I do anything? And the book of Ecclesiastes begins to have a theme that now we're going to hear in full force, but it's been running undercurrent through there, which is you can do the exact same thing, and if you eliminate God from the equation, it becomes transitory and meaningless. And yet if you do it with the Lord, in the Lord, it takes on such meaning, eternal meaning. And so... As we looked at the last chapter, the, the chapter, Bud read the last half of the last chapter, the first 
part of the chapter opens with speaking of these the vultures that were up there. It talks about the aging process, but it does it in this sort of beautiful, sad poetry. The book, uh, the chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes opens with the words, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. It's not talking about evil days like where evil in society. He's talking about the evil days that come as our bodies age. Anybody experienced any part of an aging body in their lives? Okay. Oh, anybody under 30, just put your hands down. You don't know anything. I turned 59 a few weeks ago. I'm beginning to have a lot of sympathy for people who are 59 and over. It's um, here's so it says, you know, don't don't wait until your body begins to tell you the truth of Ecclesiastes. If you're wise, you'll begin to understand it before that day. Because a book like Ecclesiastes is hard if you're young. If you're sitting there and you're 12 or 13 or 15 or 16, you're thinking, I mean, this is so depressing. This is the most depressing church I've ever been to. The, the, this book we're about to see is written from a father to a son who's describing the preacher and the wise words he gives us because when we know the brevity of life, we live this life well. And so here's just the picture. If, if you, as you begin to age, you can begin to um, hear and see some of the metaphors he uses in this. In verse 3 of chapter 12, he says, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble. Commentators think this is probably your legs and your arms, the keepers of your body. The strong men are bent. The grinders cease. It's a word for teeth. And because they are so few... Oh, that's a, that's a great picture and so sad, right? <laughs> the grinders cease because they are so few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. I didn't have glasses till I was 50. I, I was so proud of my perfect vision. Basically, the day I turned 50, my windows began to dim. The doors on the street are shut. The sound of the grinding is low. One rises up at the sound of the bird. Anybody rise up now at the sound of the bird? I mean... You know, I used to be able to sleep till noon and think that was getting up early. And it, it's, it's just amazing. It says, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a picture and a poetic version of what happens when our body ages, when a house is broken down. And that's the, the picture is, is of a house falling apart. And then he ends this section the exact same way he begins Chapter 12, verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity, hebel, hebel, hebel. So here we have 12 chapters that have begun and ended the same way with slight hints of what the purpose of life is and what is going to last. Because see, here's the deal. In our culture, this is epidemic. People don't know why they're alive, and we are a society that self-medicates. We are a society out of control with addictions with depression with all these things and in my view it's because we spend so much of our energy creativity and time on things that aren't ultimately going to satisfy us it's not that these things that the preacher talks about in these first 12 chapters are wrong in and of themselves we are to enjoy life and our food and our work and the meaning but if we derive ultimate meaning from this it will leave us empty and sad and so now listen to what these words say, starting in verse 9. 
Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these sayings. They're given of the making of many books. There's no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The life verse of most high school students. So, <laughs> the, um, the it's interesting to me because these last nine verses, look at what he says in verse 10. My son, listen to what the preacher's saying. You have a second narrator here now speaking, backing away a little bit from all those words. He says, son, we've been looking at these words, at these proverbs and at the meaninglessness and, and, and all that. And so listen to what he's saying. And isn't it interesting that what he concludes, he stresses the importance of words. Looks it again, because I think we can miss this. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight. Words of delight. You know, sometimes I think in our society, words become that smoke pebble. How, I mean, gosh, you can't even turn on news channels or whatever passes for news these days, and you feel like the words are just... Who knows what's true? Who People just say things. They're paid to talk and offer opinions on every level, not just in the political arena, but at every level. And I think at some point you just say, just no more words. So what we've had happen as a result of that is that people respond by saying, um, well, no, no more words. I don't want to hear words anymore. Let me see actions. There was a, somebody on, on something I was watching the other day had, you know, words, no deeds, not deeds, words. I mean, not words, deeds. I get it. I get it. That's a reaction to empty words, to hebel words, words that don't really mean anything. I was at uh, Wegmans a couple of weeks ago, and someone from the Universalist or Unitarian Church was saying, had a big shirt on that said, no creeds, just deeds. I thought that's really interesting. Again, I think it's a response to what is seen as emptiness. Can I tell you this? This is what the Bible says. In the beginning was the Word. See, God's response is completely different than that. It's not that, oh, let's do away with words. No creeds, nothing to believe in, whatever. It's when the Word is spoken, it is creative. When the Word is spoken, it becomes life-giving. And as we look and step back at what the preacher had to say. He says, look, son, you and I need to listen to the word that matters, that is important, that is true and life-giving. And then, if you and I know the Lord Jesus, if we are part of that family, do you understand your words also become either agents of life or death because created in the image of God, our words matter incredibly much if our words are smoke and we make and we just live in the world now of cynicism and sarcasm and passing comments, we're not stepping into what God has for us. See, when we speak to our children, when we speak to our friends, our parents, our spouses, our words are to matter. Here's what the preacher says. Our words are to be words of delight. Here's how Paul said it in Ephesians. He said, don't let any unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. An unwholesome word there isn't a curse word. It's a word unworthy 
It's a word that shouldn't be spoken because it's transitory and gone. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up or edification, that it might give grace to those who hear it in their time of need. Are our words like the preacher's one that we're thinking? You know, my words need to be words of grace. It means we have to keep from blurting out what comes into our mind. Any of you are blurters? It comes to your mind and it's just out your mouth prior to, and then you try to filter it later. Guys, in a social media generation, we know how much good that does, right? Try to take your tweet back, right? Try to take your word back. So we're told to guard our words and to make them life-giving, to be words of pleasure and delight and good. And then he says, look, what, what, what else he says about words? Verse 11, the words of the wise, which I hope you are, are to be like goads. Here's my goad. <clears throat> For those of you watching on Facebook, I'll let you see the tip because a goad is not a goad unless it has something sharp in the end. See that? Can you see the goad? That's a homemade goad, by the way. This isn't a professional one. This is just a, this is a little sharp spirit. So you know what a goad is, right? You're, you're driving, you're hurting animals and demonstration? No? It's a goad. The words of, why are the words of the wise supposed to be like that? Why are your, because not every word we say is going to be easily accepted or easily said because speaking the truth in love pokes us. But if you have a herd animal who's walking toward a ditch or off a cliff, better the goad in the side to say, oh, I guess I better walk that away. Because believe me, it's not just lemmings that go off the cliff. It's sheep and cows and you and me. And talk to anybody who's in the depths of despair and they're walking off a cliff. And so to have our words be not goads in terms of you stupid idiot, but words are you're loved enough to have me care for you and you're wrong in this. You're wrong to be hopeless. You may not say it exactly like that, but to say you can, there is hope. There is a future. And you may not see it, but our words like goads, right? can keep people sometimes from steering into such danger. Parents, our words have to be goads sometimes, and there's no need for them to be cruel, to be irresponsible, and to be unthought through. But we've got to speak the truth to our children and to our spouses. And, but to speak it in love, and then... Interestingly enough, we begin to form what, what I think of is when I look at the, read these two verses, I see Jesus. Verse 11, chapter 12, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed. When I hear that phrase, nails firmly fixed, I can't help but think about a man whose nails were firmly fixed in his hands and who was willing to speak words of truth that must have been goads for the people who hung him to say, Father, would you forgive them for they don't know what they do? How would you feel 
if your sins put him on the cross, if you put him there and you felt that response from one you had killed. Well, I got news for you. Our sins. And Jesus' word, that words come from where? It says one great shepherd. Verse 11 again, the end of that. He says, these nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. And I just can't help but think of one shepherd of the sheep. And one great shepherd who spoke words of truth. Because Jesus loves you enough to tell you the truth. Do you love the people around you enough to, to learn how to tell them the truth in love? So the words of wise give pleasure and they give pain sometimes. My son, beware of anything beyond these words. Of the making of many books there is no end and much study is a weariness to the flesh. This is not an injunction against reading books. A lot of wonderful books, but here's the thing is that you, you can just keep writing and keep reading and keep thinking and never come to a knowledge of the truth. That, I believe, is what he's counseling us against. Let's just always go to the next level. Let's just always talk about the next point. See, this person said this, and this person said this, and who can know what's true? Because, you know, Joe, the expert, said that. Ah, but Jim, the other expert, said this. And you can just do that over and over and over again. But that we have the Word written. We have the Word made flesh. We have the Word to give us a sense that life isn't smoke. Life isn't just gone. It's eternally founded. It's to give us pleasure, these words, and pain and perspective. Finally, it says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. So here it is. No book summates like Ecclesiastes, fear God, keep His commandments. And then interestingly, the next phrase you see is translated wildly different in many translations. In mine it says, for this is the whole duty of man. Basically, I looked up in the Hebrew and it just says, after it says, fear God and keep His commandments, basically it just says the word Adam which is the word for humankind. So you could look at it. I mean, you could translate it. Your translations, I'm sure, would, may look very uh, all over the board. Could this be what all people should be doing? This is what men and women are to do. Let's just simplify. Fear God. How do we define fearing God? To live in the knowledge of His truth, justice, holiness, love, to live with a continual knowledge that there is a God and He is continually with you. If you live like that, that the true God walks with you and He is a God of justice, truth, holiness, and love, if you know that, you will walk in the fear of the Lord and then obey Him. Keep His commandments. And then he closes with this caution. For God will bring every deed into judgment. See, it's not all hebel. What we do as believers lasts. We don't have to fear judgment, but it should make us reverent with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The last thing that he says he gives us 
is preparedness. Two things I want to point out. I say this all the time, but we have to live like this. This life is not all there is. I don't care if you're 11 or 12, the youngest who would be in here, 13 or 82 or whatever the oldest person here is. This life is not all there is. God has built us to be eternal. And so as we live in preparedness, we should live with the knowledge that everything we do matters and that we should live that way. Let me just point out one little phrase, and this is, I don't know who this is for, a lot of us probably, but did you catch that phrase in the very last verse of the book of Ecclesiastes? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. Guys, ladies, if you're doing things in secret and somehow you feel safe in that, or you feel guilt or shame in that, please know the Lord knows and He is ready and willing and able to bring your secret thing out, but it will never be healed as long as you try to keep it in secret. Every secret thing can be healed and dealt with, but if you take any comfort or pleasure in the fact that whatever you're doing in secret you think isn't affecting you because your spouse doesn't know, your kids don't know, God knows. And He's not looking to punish you. He's looking to complete you. And that means His holiness has to burn away the sin and it's got to deal with it, but it has to, it's got to come out. Just leave it there, whether good or evil. I want to go back to a verse I touched on last week and close with this. If you've got your Bibles open to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, because reading Ecclesiastes, as in any book of the Bible, including the Old Testament books, we must read in light of the cross, because as Christians, this changes things for us. Romans 8, verse 12, chapter 14. And I want to close the study of Ecclesiastes with this. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit I need to go down a few verses, sorry. Let me pick up with verse 18. I wrote down 12, but I really meant to start with verse 18. Uh, this is Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us who have known Jesus. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This futility, this hubble that we experience, all of us experience, says this is happening to all of creation, not just you and me, but all of creation subject to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it in hope of what's coming. What does that mean? Why is it that the one who subjects in hope, God himself, why would he allow futility? Well, this is the, one of the pivotal questions, isn't it? Why does sin reign in this world? Why do things happen that seem so awful? And 
one of the things I just want to point you to is that in this world that is so transitory, in this world of all sorts of stuff we can't explain, if there was no futility in any of it, if God made it all real now, there would be no reason to find our ultimate purpose in Him. God has wired you and you and you and me to find our ultimate purpose in a relationship with Him. And if we take ultimate meaning, if everything is so great that we can take ultimate meaning in anything else, even great things like our kids or our marriage or a ministry or any good thing, then we'll set Him aside. So I believe what this is saying is that the fall, which has subjected everything to futility, is allowed to continue so that we can't take any comfort in anything other than Him. Now, I could be wrong. I'll, I'll open it up to, to other people. You can come and tell me, boy, you've totally misinterpreted that, and I'm, I'm okay with that. We'll talk about it. But when I read that, and when I read it in light of the Ecclesiastes connection of futility, I see this truth that the creation itself in verse 20 is going to finally be liberated. It's going to be set free from its bondage and corruption. Verse 20 and 21. And it's going to obtain freedom. See, ultimately for the preacher, it's the vultures that ruin what he tried to have happen in his life. That they came and he worked hard and he did hard and he lived well and he had wealth and ultimately it was meaningless because the vultures of time and circumstance robbed it. And ultimately death was the great equalizer. And then we have as Christians the privilege of, of seeing that death wasn't the end and that there wasn't a body for the vultures to pick over couple thousand years ago because Jesus Christ walked out of a grave. And because He did that and because He's alive, it changes everything. This morning we're going to take communion. And this is a celebration that, not that the preacher's wrong, he was wise, but he was incomplete. See, he lived on that side of the cross and what he could only hope for that there was meaning in all these things you and I have the privilege of living into. Because the Holy Spirit is now, the Spirit of God is now available to us. If you don't know the Lord, if this is all kind of strange to you and you think I am really whacked, I would just invite you, invite you to explore the truth of this. Because I tell you, for most of us in this room and, and, and millions and billions of people in this world, it changes everything but it can't just be just words. It's the Word, and then the Word made flesh, and the Word made real. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank You that You are the Word made flesh. That You are a Word filled with delight and pleasure. That You speak words, Lord, of conviction that may goad us in pain. You give us words that bring perspective of eternity. And Lord, You give us words that prepare us to live forever, that we know we're not just passing away smoke, but we are substance. Lord, as we are in this ocean of life and we see people 
grasping on for something solid as they feel like they're drowning. Lord, help us to cling to that which lasts forever. Lord, not just the wreckage of some boat that's been split apart, but Lord, You've given us an ark. You've given us a true place to sail and have substance. And Lord, You proved it by rising again. By truly dying and then three days later coming back. And Lord, no fairy tale, but a miracle, no doubt. Lord, would You show us? Would You help us to come to that pivotal decision whether this is true or not? Because we know that the end of one road, if we say, no, that's just a fairy tale, it's not true, then the words of the preacher of Ecclesiastes become ours that really, ultimately, everything is meaningless because we're just going to pass away. But Lord, if we know it's true, and you demonstrate that and you awaken in us that truth, then we know that things will happen for, in your purpose for eternity. Help us to be people of words that matter. Words that bring and breed life and truth. Because Lord, on the night that you were betrayed, you spoke to your disciples You took bread and you broke it and gave it to them. And you said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And then after supper, you took a cup of wine. When you'd given thanks, you gave it to your disciples. And you said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. It is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. As often as we eat this bread and drink this wine, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. Thank You for these gifts, Lord. We take them in faith, knowing that they're a pledge, a down payment on life to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sharing of the bread and the wine is meant for those who believe in Jesus Christ, who've examined their lives, who come having confessed sin. No one's forced to come. You're welcome to come, participate. You don't have to be a member of Living Hope or this denomination to participate. But come in faith, believing that in taking this and in partaking of this, that you receive spiritual strength from this time. And at your pivotal points of decision where you are, where where you're asking for something from God, wisdom, strength, whatever it is, take an opportunity as you come to, to find it here at the table. You're welcome at the table. You don't have to be perfect. You can be broken. You just have to know you're needy. Every needy person's welcome at this table if you know that he wants to respond to your need. After you're prayed for, for those who are offering prayer for people right up the top of those steps there. You can just step right just just beyond the doors there. And people would love to pray with you about anything you're going through and uh, be amazed at what God would do as you ask him in prayer. Can I have those who are serving the elements come forward this morning? The way we take our take the uh, wafers is just come forward by row. Take a wafer, dip it in the wine. The dark wafers are gluten free and As you come, 
believe in faith that God meets you here at the point of your need.